0: This is Positive Parenting, parenting expertise and advice from best-selling parenting author and national newspaper columnist, Mr. Dad Armin Broad.
1: Welcome to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Broad. The Internet era is often criticized for undermining our privacy, concentration, well-being, and ability to maintain real relationships. But is it really that bad? Well, if you ask Sarah Granger, who's my guest for this part of today's show, she would say not a chance. Sarah is a nationally recognized digital media innovator and an expert on online culture and social technology. She's had the chance to work with the White House, the Department of State, and other federal agencies as a resource on technological policy. Now, Sarah's not somebody who just dove into the Internet age late in life. She started at nine years old when her dad came home with an Apple II+. Sarah's got a new book out, and we're going to be talking all about it. It's about how digital media is molding our lives, whether that's how we relate in relationships to one another or how we raise the kids, how we support political views or start new friendships. Whatever it is, she's focusing on the best ways to make the most of digital opportunities and to make our lives more complete. Some of the questions I want to ask Sarah have to do with how to own your digital identity, how to build your digital persona, why 60 is the new 30, that means that seniors are spending a lot of time online, how you can use Twitter, and what a difference a single tweet can make, and a lot more. I'm Armin Braun. It all starts when Positive Parenting continues, right after this. Or better yet, volunteer to text for them. It might be a little awkward, but believe me, you'll live. Learn more
0: at stoptextstoprex.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration.
1: Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brat, and my guest for this part of today's show is Sarah Granger, who's the author of The Digital Mystique, How the Culture of Connectivity Can Empower Your Life Online and Off. Sarah, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So I want to have you start off a little bit. I, I mentioned this in the introduction about how you started off. I thought it was a, a great story that even your dad brings home this Apple Two Plus and, and says, hey, this is the future.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I was nine years old. It was uh, 1982, and he, I guess, was really into gadgets um, and and technology, and understood that that's where things were moving. I guess my grandfather had bought one of the first calculators, and so my dad got one of the first computers. And but the the thing was, he didn't just bring it home and say, "Here, learn it." He also um, Enrolled me in a, in a couple of classes to learn about how to use computers and to learn typing. So I started developing skills early, including coding.
1: Coding is a, a pretty advanced kind of a thing, for, especially, well, I guess not for way back then. For way back then, it was maybe even less advanced than it seems now. <laughs> but it, that seems to be an unusual way of getting under the hood, so well, to speak.
2: It, it, was, uh, it was basic programming, and so it was very simple instructions like, Print this, and then go to that, and so you go back to, and you know, reprint or basic graphics. And um, I took classes for a couple of years in, in basic programming, and went to a computer camp of all things. Wow! And it was yeah, at, at a at a girls' um, college in uh, Missouri, and uh, you know, it was it was really before its time, I think, um, in retrospect, but it was wonderful that I had those opportunities that a lot of kids now take for granted. But for me, it was, it was definitely formative. And I think also being able to see the inside of computers mm-hmm. and really understand both how the hardware works and then how the software provides instructions to the hardware. It, it framed how I think about technology and, and my perspective in general.
1: Yeah, that's a good thing. I mean, I think a lot of people just take it for granted. As you said, though, so that's exactly it. I mean, I, I have these discussions with my, my daughter who's 13, my youngest one, the older, the other two, you know, they, they can still remember before there were touch, you know, touch screens. Mm-hmm. But, you know, to say, you know, do you realize when I had my first computer, it was an old K-Pro and <laughs> you had to, if you wanted to spell check, you had to wait. It would be like minutes. It could take to <laughs> spell check a document or, you know, you had to turn on things and turn off things. Mm-hmm. I remember it like printing out something, and I had put the start bold, but didn't put the finish bold at the end of you know two words later so they, like 20 or 30 pages is all bold because if, <laughs> yeah. you know, if you don't just you know silly silly things like that that, that we don't think about anymore it just things happen all by themselves mm-hmm. and but you moved on to significantly bigger and, and greater things.
2: Well, I, I think that foundation stuck with me, and, and it provided a perspective so that I could go on and really build a career around technology, media, and, and society, and how all of those things are intertwined, and was able to work in startups and, and work on digital media, and, uh, and then look back at, at all of the things that I learned over the years, and that's really the experience that I put into the book.
1: You know, one of the reasons you're here, one of the reasons I want to ask you a lot of questions about things, you know, the book is about more than just parenting, but so we'll we'll talk about the the greater things as well. But how do you begin to introduce a computer to a child? What's the best way to start them? I mean, uh,
2: yeah, you know, it's it's funny because computers are so uh entrenched in our lives now and they're and they're in all of these things in our that we use including our cars. And um, our phones. And so I think kids these days are are being introduced to them before they realize that they're computers. And then so I like when I go talk to Girl Scout troops, for example, I have to talk to them and explain to them that like this is this phone that you have or this uh, tablet device. It's it's got a camera. It's got a lot of computing power. You can research all of these things and, and allow them to sort of grapple with the fact that what they're dealing with is actually a very powerful tool and not just a toy mm-hmm. um, and you know when when they get an actual like a laptop or something i i one of my friends was crowdsourcing on facebook yesterday asking like what kind of computer should i get my fourth grader she wants a computer i don't know you know where where to start and and uh i think today really we we just uh Need to provide the instruction that whatever they that complements whatever they're getting in school, because a lot of the time they're already learning more than we realize in the classroom about how to use the computers, and and that's why they're asking for them.
1: Do you think it's important now as much as it was when you first got started to pop open the hood and see what's going on in there and understand that? Absolutely. It seems like it's a lot harder. I mean, then you <laughs> yes. had a big thing; you could see the big components. Now you know you open up your you try to you can't even open up your your yeah. phone for the most part they're they're sealed.
2: Yeah, it is, but uh you know and and I and I applaud all of these programs that teach kids to code early on and um particularly Scratch and and other languages, but I I definitely advocate for anyone who is willing to take the time and either show a computer already opened or go through the process of of Taking one apart that's old um, or, a, or a phone or really anything that they can show the components or even a you know an ancient computer you know from <laughs> back in the day it <laughs> would still suffice yeah. because y- y- you can it's almost easier to say well this chip does this and that chip does that and um, but to give them a sense of how it works absolutely.
1: why is that important though?
2: I think because it's hard to envision what how this computer has, has become sort of its its own mechanical brain and, and what you know, here is the power source, here is the um the chip that that keeps it all going, here are the parts that give it memory. You know, mm-hmm. when I first was learning it was you, you had to learn about your, your ROM and your RAM and what the right. difference was and and uh so things like that um I think provide a, a mental Framework, sort of the building blocks, um, so that you can see where you're going next. But uh, I had a modem, and so for <laughs> me, yeah, 300 baud modem that was oh, yeah. a card and a, and a little port on the back that you could plug it into. And so I could actually see the the piece. And then when they got but o- they got more advanced, I could see the lights on them, and so I could observe the data coming. The flickering, in. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. that really helped me understand how. Data moves through mm. um, the internet.
1: I'm just wondering about and some of these things. Still, it may be an age thing that I I try to think about this, and I'm trying to think of how can you explain some of these things that are are really almost beyond explanation, like how it is I can pick up a phone, and that that signal gets to somebody who's across the country, or even how it gets to somebody who's sitting on the other end of the couch. Mm-hmm. I mean, the the technological like, wizardry. That happens there is just so unbelievable that it's just it's it's almost magic
2: it is it really is, but then of course, we always notice when it's not working right, <laughs> so if we've got problems with the uh the connection, then suddenly we're we're all oh having right. oh wait it's not working and and uh so yeah, we do tend to take it for granted sometimes but uh yeah that's that's one I haven't um spent a lot of time on in terms of that I like to the one thing that I have shown people when I do presentations is a big image of sort of all of the lights on um, like a global map with a bunch of different lines in between them and and so that you can really see how many connections there are and get a sense there, there are various uh, images out there online with different sort of schematics that you can it's almost like a like how the brain works in the different connections right so i and i and i also have used the analogy of the universe and just how all the stars are are part of you know and they're they're pulled by gravity and and Mm -hmm. you can't always see it but everything's all connected and so i think some of those images can help
1: so what was the verdict on the computer for the fourth grader
2: you know I didn't read all of the comments, but <laughs> because I knew I saw there were like twenty of them I figured all right this is handled
1: <laughs> okay so what would your your take be though?
2: my take would be well I'm a big fan of of apples so for a kid if it's in your budget, I would say get a MacBook air because it's small and portable and easy to take around and um, and I always have looked at apples as very uh, good teaching tools and easy to use for most people. So that would be my recommendation. But um, there are so many great Mm -hmm. computers out there. But I would say a smaller, lighter uh, laptop for a kid would be easier for them to move around. But that said, the one thing that um, is is really important for for younger kids is to keep the computer in a central location in the home so that it's their, their use can be uh, monitored.
1: Right. Talking with Sarah Granger, who's the author of The Digital Mystique, How the Culture of Connectivity Can Empower Your Life Online and Off. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll keep talking to Sarah. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armand Brott. If you're just joining us, talking with Sarah Granger, who's the author of The Digital Mystique. And you just were mentioning about leaving the computer in a central location. I just have the last question about hardware. I remember these, these things being really delicate, or at least we were being told that they were delicate, that you shouldn't knock it around. You could jostle a hard drive and it would destroy everything. Mm-hmm. And I see kids with computers in their backpacks just sort of heaving them around as though They didn't have a computer in there, and it just makes my teeth on edge every time I see that, Mm -hmm. thinking, you know, I I just bought that, you know, even though it's a couple years old now. But (laughs) are they able to take a beating?
2: They can take some (laughs) beating, and I I have the same reaction. Um, But uh, yeah, I mean, you can still jostle a laptop. I dropped one a couple years ago on a trip, and... It was in my bag, but it was enough of a jolt when it hit the the ground that it detached the hard drive from um part of the the laptop so I couldn't access my data after that point. And so once I got it home I luckily I was able to get it back. But yeah, these these things can still definitely be uh disturbed. Yeah.
1: So you've got the computer in a central location. How involved should we be? And and I think that people know the answer to the theoretical question about how involved we should be in our kids' social media. But how do you actually do that about, you know, friending us or giving us passwords? I mean, it's such, it's an easy thing to say, do that. Sure. And then it's it's a really hard thing because they can go out and, and set up a new profile someplace else the next day. Yeah. Or five minutes later.
2: Yeah. That's a tricky one. And it really depends on the kid. Um, but the general advice that I give um, both in my book and and when I go out and speak about this is that you want to just keep communicating with your kids and talking to them about why they're using the computer for what they're doing. So Mm -hmm. it's not just about what they're doing but about the why. Because then you're informed in a different way and you can say to them, well, I don't know if this is a, a particularly good social network for you to be using. Maybe we can find you another one that serves that same purpose, and you can go there with your friends. Or, And you can also, I think, that keeping involved, keeping making sure that you always have a copy of their passwords, sure, they can go and they can create another account. But if they go do that, um, then there, there can be reper- repercussions. And certainly one of the things that uh, I generally recommend and has been recommended by others is to create a, a family policy about how you use the technology, both the hardware and the software, and and uh, keeping into in mind all of the different things like whether you share your email address with people, mm-hmm. um, where in the house you can use the technology, what hours of the day you can use the devices, how many hours, the screen yeah. time. Um, and just keep, keep in, in constant communication about them. I think the open communication mm-hmm. is, is really the key because when the kids start feeling that they can or should hide things from you, that's when the trouble starts.
1: Right, and how do you get across a message that I want to have this discussion with you and that I'm doing this not to be a pain, but I'm doing it because I'm really concerned, and their their response could be or... It often is, what are you concerned about? I mean, I'm just talking to my friends.
2: Yeah. Well, that's when you can choose whether bringing in some of the scary stories is helpful. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah, shouldn't laugh, but...
2: Yeah. Well, yeah, but there are certainly plenty of them out there, and, and you can say, well, this happened and to so-and-so, and here's why, and I don't want this to happen to you, and I know you have generally nice friends, but um, the Internet's a big place, and sure i I get uh teenagers rolling their eyes at me sometimes, and I'll just have to say, "Look do you want is is this something that you take seriously or not is, do do you want to be ridiculed in front of your friends? Do you want to see something about you online forever in perpetuity right right and I don't like to scare people because generally I think technology is a wonderful thing, and I try to push back from this scaring, but at some point, they have to understand what the risks really are and why it's important and why our par- parents care about this.
1: Yeah. I, I'm also concerned about the the addiction element of this thing because it's easy for me as a parent to sit back and, and throw around the word addiction. And I tell my kids, but my, my youngest one in particular, I think you're an addict. I mean, mm-hmm. and, and when I get back a response like, I can quit anytime I want, that just reinforces the issue because that's like what addicts say and alcoholics say that I can quit anytime. How do you, first of all, assess whether there really is an addiction? And then how do you deal with it once it's established that there is one?
2: Well, I'm not a trained therapist, so I can only say what I've read by a trained therapists. Right. Um but the the there there are two ways to deal with it and one of them is well can you can you really call them on it can you really give them cold turkey take away their devices see what happens usually that's not practical because of school they're right. using so much technology in school um but being able to reduce it to certain levels or provide well the, the the carrot and see how they respond to it as a carrot and mm-hmm. and and gauge their usage. I think the the kids that are really drawn in and addicted to it, they completely lose track of time. And but this this I've seen with with TV too. It can happen with TV as much as it can happen with games or or um social media use. So right. The assessment, I think, just it, it comes from your gut instinct as a parent. Are they so attached to this thing that they can't possibly let go of it? And then in terms of the letting go, I do share some tips for adults on how to deal with your own social media addiction in the, yeah. in the book that might also apply well, Give, give us a couple. Yeah, so... Um, well, if you can't do the if you can't do the cold turkey, you can definitely set limits for yourself. You can say, okay, I'm only going to take this block of time today, and this is what I have for my social media use, and set alarms. Um, you can also limit the types of social networks you use, or you can take yourself offline, and if you have work to do, use your computer offline to to do the work, and then um, upload mm-hmm. it so that you have some controls set into the system. But mostly f- for me, I I don't think I was an email addict, but it was definitely a habit for me. And right, I went on right. a trip uh, about five years ago where I went off email for three to four weeks, and it completely changed my whole use of <laughs> email since then. I don't oh, check good. it as often, and it's much more a planned event, and it has freed me of that sort of... I had been attached to email since I was in high school. So, this was this was 20 years of habit development that I was able to break just by taking a few weeks off.
1: So, we just have a minute left. I want you to just talk really quickly about the importance of FaceTime. I mean, with with your kids because it's so easy to be sitting next to them and having the computer in a central place and then your computer is there and you're both working independently. Mm-hmm. But to actually be talking and saying, what are you doing over there? And explain that problem to me Mm -hmm. because it's easy for them just to get lost.
2: Sure. It's been really fun for me to see my daughter get into Minecraft because even though Mm -hmm. I had been warned about that as one of the things that kids could get sucked into, I didn't know anything about it, which is rare. So it, this was really fun for me <laughs> to see a new uh, environment and to watch her really grow and, lear- and learn how yeah. to use it. And so it's been a, a nice opportunity for us to, to say, okay, well, what are you doing here? And how does this work? And now she's into Pokemon Go. And so just having fun with it and having a free conversation and seeing where it goes when when they're in a state where they're not stressed and they're not, for time and there isn't somebody else on the other end of the line so that you can say well can you show me can you share this with me
1: right and also i think the the importance of pick up a book every once in a while yes that that's that's something i've seen re- definitely over the years that there's been less interaction with books i mean yeah there's plenty of reading that goes online and i do that as well but there's something different about mm-hmm. sitting down definitely. with a book where you're and not going to get a tangible book
2: not yeah. not an ebook yeah.
1: physical yeah sarah granger is the author of the digital mystique how the culture of connectivity can empower your life online and off at twitter she's at sarah granger and sarah's got an h in it any other social media you want to direct us to
2: that's it saragranger.com okay, com. Thank, okay.
1: You thank you Hey there, welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brat, and it's time for a Parents at Play segment, and we've got a bunch of toys for you here that are so great that they need no introduction at all. Let's start with Chip from Wowee. In a word, Chip is amazing. He's a smart, trainable, affectionate robot puppy that's always ready to play. Tell him to fetch, and he'll bolt after his Bluetooth-enabled ball. Give him a kiss, and he'll give you a slobber-free one right back. Tell him to do yoga, and he'll do a perfect downward-facing dog. No cat-cow for this little guy. If you wear the smart band, he'll follow you around the house. But if you ignore him for more than a few minutes, he'll bark to attract your attention. The voice recognition is great, and so is the hardware, which enables Chip to avoid obstacles and respond to a variety of touches and gestures. The wheels are especially cool and allow Chip to move in any direction, even sideways and on almost any surface. You can play with Chip for hours on a single charge, and when his energy level drops, his eyes change color, and he automatically makes his way back to his smart bed to nap. It's for ages 8 and up. Costs about $180. com. Koji from Wowee. Another wonderful tech toy from Wowee, the makers of Chip. This highly interactive, smart, and wonderfully engaging robot will help your child learn to do basic coding by using emojis. And that's where the name comes from. Code plus emoji equals Koji. There's an app, of course, and it's a good one filled with games that encourage memory, problem solving, and creative thinking. And there are plenty of coding challenges, such as navigating Koji through a maze. Your child does the programming on the app. And if you get it right, Koji spins around, does a little dance, and displays fireworks or other happy emojis on his screen. Your child can use the app without Koji or play with Koji without the app, using his remote control functions. Batteries are not included. It's for ages four and up, costs around forty-five bucks. Wowie.com. Cubetto from Primo Toys. Coding without a screen, apps, or even written instructions? Sounds impossible, right? Wrong. Primo has created a delightful and beautiful way to introduce basic coding concepts to very little kids. There are four components. Cubetto himself, or herself in fact, a cloth map for Cubetto to move around on, 16 coding blocks, and a programmable tablet. Kids place Cubetto on the map, decide where they want him to go, and they use the blocks, left turn, right turn, straight ahead, and even function, to make that happen. It's very intuitive and hands-on and does a great job of bringing the digital and tactile words together. We also love that Cubetto is made mostly of wood and is completely gender-neutral. It's for ages 3 and up, costs about $225, primotoys.com. Edwin the Duck from Pi Lab. This is not your father's, mother's, or even Ernie's, you know, from Sesame Street, rubber ducky, and that is a good thing. While Edwin isn't exactly a robot, he's definitely smart, connected, and full of fun, educational games. Edwin is a lovely standalone or float-alone companion for your little one, but he also interacts with his digital world. Oh, and for you, he's got a temperature sensor so you won't plop your baby into a bath that's too hot, a built-in Bluetooth speaker so you can stream your favorite music, and a nightlight for when bath times and playtime are over. It's safe for kids as young as eight months... Costs under $100 at edwintheduck.com. Zoomer Marshall Paw Patrol Dalmatian from Spin Master. Paw Patrol's Dalmatian Fire Dog is ready to roll with more than 80 interactive rescue missions and tricks and 150 sounds and phrases. He also plays the Paw Patrol theme song and dances to it. He's got water cannons to shoot, not real water of course, and more. Just charge him up, pat his head, and get ready to save the day. AA batteries are not included. It's for ages 3 and up. You can get it from Kmart's Fab 15 list for about 70 bucks. Prices at other retailers vary. Or spinmaster.com. You can find reviews of tons more games and toys and all sorts of other things to do with your family at parentsatplay.com. We'll be back next week with another segment for you. But hang in there. There's more positive parenting coming right up.
0: More with Mr. Dad, Armin Brought. after this, from the MrDad.com radio network.
2: People have all kinds of excuses for not saving energy. I didn't plug it in. I'll turn it off later. It's not my music. It's just one phone charger. So, um, we don't have those Energy Star appliances.
0: So that old window leaks? How much energy and money could the new ones really save? Maybe it's time to stop making excuses and start doing some simple things to save the energy and resources we can. Because a little here and a little there can add up to a lot later, and you just never know what people will need in the future. My name is Sarah, and I'm going to get started today. We can all help save more energy for tomorrow. What's your excuse? For more energy-saving tips that also save money, visit loseyourexcuse.gov parents. This message is brought to you by the U.S. Department of Energy, the Ad Council, and the station. Now, get ready for more positive parenting with Armin Brott from the MrDad.com radio network.
1: Welcome to the second part of today's Positive Parenting Show. I'm Armin Brott, and thank you for staying with us. If you're a fairly typical teenage guy, or you've been raised like a fairly typical teenage guy, even if you aren't one, then you probably haven't been taught a lot of important things about how to get and keep a partner, how to be sexual with someone, and even how to think about these things. There's also a good chance that your parents or guardians, it could be an aunt, uncle, grandparents, or whatever, Haven't had the sex talk with you. Or maybe they've just given you a book and told you to let them know if you have any questions. Even if the adults in your life haven't said anything, you've probably heard about dating or being sexual from other teens, and you've certainly seen it on screen. In this part of today's show, we're going to be talking with an expert on the psychology of male sexual development and relationships. And we're going to be talking about his new book that is aimed at teenage boys and young men. And it's got all the information that they're going to need about dating and sex before and when they need it. And what's really interesting about this book is, I mean, besides the great information, is that no one really has ever written a book specifically for teenage boys before. Most books having to do with sex and dating are aimed at boys and girls together or just girls. Or they're written by women, which makes it a little bit less approachable. So if you've got a teenage boy around the house or somebody who's about to become a teenage boy or recently was, you're definitely not going to want to miss this show. So stay with us. We'll be right back. I'm the only one in school that can tie his own shoes. Most kids make fun of me because I still believe in the tooth fairy.
2: A third of the kids in my eighth grade class drink alcohol regularly. Over 99% of my class has been offered illegal drugs. Half of my college classmates binge drink, abuse drugs, or do both. But
0: the frequent dinners I had with my family have helped make sure I'm not one of them. Learn more about the National Center on Addiction and Substance Abuse at Columbia University's Family Day at casafamilyday.org. Dinner makes a difference.
1: Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott, and my guest for this part of today's show is Andrew Smiler, who's the author of Dating and Sex A Guide for the 21st Century Teen Boy. Andrew, thanks for joining us.
3: Sure. Thanks for having me, Armin. It's a pleasure to be here.
1: Let's talk about the book and the approach for teen boys. I do a lot of interviews on the show and have interviewed a lot of people who have written books for teenagers about sex. And as you say in your introduction, the, the there are not a lot of them that are written for boys, or very few, and there are not a lot of them that are written for men, which I'm sure increases the, the credibility factor.
3: <laughs> yes, yes, and, and certainly no one uh, who has written a book like this who can claim to have been doing kind of academic-style research on boys and men for the last 15 years um, it certainly seems to be a gap in what's available, and uh, I hope that I'm filling that gap well.
1: Well, I hope so. I mean I, I do a lot of books for fathers and found that over the years that the, the vast majority of books for fathers were written by women also. And so I mean there there definitely is this idea that we're we I think we're we're getting to a point where we're about ready to shrug it off, but that parenting and anything to do with parenting is has to go kind of through women. Um which is, is it's, it, I mean, there's nothing wrong with women. <laughs> I'm absolutely making no complaints. I, I have a mother and love her much. You know, and have no, no argument there. But, I mean, it, there's, it, like it wouldn't make any, any much of a problem for somebody to say, you know, I'd rather have a, a female doctor if you were a girl. Um, it, but it doesn't seem to work the other way around. Anyway, but that's right. neither here nor there. So you've been doing this for a long time.
3: Um, uh, apparently, yes. It's starting to dawn on me that that I might <laughs> be middle aged or something. Oh no! Um, no. <laughs> actually, yes, I, I noticed that. I'm I'm probably about halfway or a little bit more. Um,
1: so, have you noticed that, over the time that you've been doing this work with boys and young men that things have changed? I'm really fascinated by this whole idea about the, whether human development is is actually changing, whether we're seeing some evolution in front of our eyes or whether nothing's changing. It's just kind of a perspective.
3: Um, I don't know that human development has changed, changed so much, but the culture in which we're developing has certainly changed. I mean, when I started doing therapy work with teenage boys, uh, the idea that you could pick up a gadget in your hand and punch in a 10-digit number and talk to somebody on the other side of the planet was reserved for sci-fi. I mean, you know, Captain Kirk could do that, but nobody else could. And now we can all kind of do that. I mean, that's, that's what a cell phone does. Right. Um, so that has changed. And I think that in some ways that has pushed kids to start thinking more complexly a little bit younger than say my generation did because there's a lot more information coming at them that they have to handle.
1: Yeah. Well, I think so, one of the things I, I'm thinking of that would at least get me to think that things are changing a little bit, and I don't know whether it's human development or not, but I'm thinking back to to when I was in high school or junior high school or even before that, and looking at the way girls dress and the kinds of things that you hear are going on in schools, or at least with school-age kids, and thinking, man, that was either either not going on at all when I was that age— or I was completely oblivious, even more oblivious than I thought I was. Uh, (laughs) And I'm sure that there's some elements of both of that in there, but I mean, I I definitely see that there's some cultural stuff that allows for different sorts of behavior than was considered to be okay when when we were young. Uh,
3: Absolutely, modes of dress, especially for women, have certainly changed. We know that uh, at the same time, uh, for example, the age at which kids start to date, the age at which kids are reporting their first kiss, even the age at which boys are reporting their first consensual experiences of sex, those haven't actually changed. Um, Another change is that today's teenage boys are much more conscious of their appearance than they were, say, 20 years ago. We have a lot more teenage boys who work out and who are really trying to be cut. Unfortunately, that also means uh, greater use of illicit substances like um, anabolic steroids and yeah, yeah. things like that. But, we end up you know, with this
1: those, this thing called manorexia. People are you know, these body images for boys or body image problems for boys that are, yeah.
3: Right, right. And, and bigorexia is uh, one of the other labels that I hear for that. It's, right. Uh, this desire to be so big, yeah.
1: So you're saying that that the age at which they start dating, though, is the same as it has been?
3: Yeah. um, As far as we can tell, uh, you know, we have survey data going back into the 90s, some into the 80s, where we actually have asked teenagers about when they started dating or where we're asking uh, middle school age kids or some of them junior high age kids if we're talking about research from the 80s. Um, and, you know, it, it really seems to start somewhere around 12, 13, 14, and, you know, that's maybe 35, 40 percent of kids, and, and that percentage at that age point hasn't really changed a whole lot, maybe, you know, two or three percentage points, which is a lot of people, but going from 35 percent to 38 percent doesn't seem like that big of a deal.
1: No, it doesn't when you think about it. But, I mean, it's, it's within the, the margin of error, I guess, that a lot of surveys tell us.
3: Yeah. So yeah. those kinds of things are changing—are not changing, excuse me. Um, the, we know that the average age of first intercourse for boys has stayed about 16. Um, you know, we have, we have good federal data on that. Uh, there's an every-other-year survey called the Youth Risk Behavior Surveillance Study, Mm-hmm. that looks at lots of behavior that kind of the public gets concerned about when teens do it. Uh, it's actually available online. You can go look at the stats yourself. Um, every other year since 1991, they've surveyed 12 to 15,000 teenagers. Um, and consistently we see about 35 to 40% of ninth grade boys telling us that they voluntarily had sex.
1: You know, that's um, so interesting because... When I talk to people who are writing books for girls or about girls anyway, they're talking about how there's differing definitions of sex these days that have kind of not calling the kind of the Bill Clinton thing, not calling <laughs> what, what you and I might consider to be a sexual contact You know, that's just sort of expected uh, and that, that that's happening at younger ages. Can those things coexist at the same time if boys are not starting any earlier but girls are?
3: Um, absolutely. We, we know that uh, relationships at these ages are not necessarily stable or long-term. Um, and we know that the kids who are kind of more inclined to be sexually active or who are sexually active at younger ages tend to hang out together. Okay. Um, so, you know, I mean, you know, we, we all went to high school, right? The jocks hanging out together, the nerds hanging out together you know, whatever, the rebels hang out together. Um, and one of the things that we know is that kind of small-scale friendship groups, networks of, say, six or eight or ten or twelve people, and if, if we're looking at a behavior like starting to drink or starting to smoke cigarettes or starting to use illicit drugs or starting to have sex, the, most of the time that, that group kind of shifts over all within about the span of a year. Um, so they all... We'll start using that substance hmm. or kind of reach that next level of sexuality, kind of close in time.
1: Okay. Okay. So I want to ask you a little bit about the emotional side of things, because that's something that Great. it's another, another boy-girl issue, that girls generally have got more of a, of a community or a group of people that they can talk about and they can help each other through breakups and, and things like that, or even the excitement parts of, of relationships. Boys have less of that and there there's a certain socialization that's not going to be quite as as uh, vulnerable where you know it's not they're not going to be talking about the the soft side of relationships is that something that parents can help with
3: absolutely that is something that parents can help with One of the things that I encourage um the families that I work with I see in therapy to do is instead of asking so i I usually have this conversation with the parents. Um, I encourage them, instead of asking their kids, you know, how was your day today? Because we all know that the answer is fine. My day was fine. Shut up. Um, (laughs) I encourage them to ask their kids, um, you know, what was one thing that happened today that made you feel good or made you happy or got you excited? And also, what was one thing that made you feel down, got you depressed, made you mad, um, so that we have kind of both the positive and the negative side of emotions there. Um, You know, at first, a lot of kids, uh, you know, nothing, nothing made me happy today. Nothing made me, made me sad today. Right. You know, as a parent, after, you know, after you get that three times, like, really, for three days, nothing has made you happy?
1: (laughs) Or sad, right. Right. Everything, everything's fine.
3: You you can ask that follow-up question, but if everything's been fine for three days, like, you kind of don't have anywhere to go there. Um, and so asking these questions every day is a way to kind of bring emotional conversation into the day to day. It's a way to get boys thinking about feeling kind of at a rate where they don't that they don't otherwise get or wouldn't otherwise get if we're just asking them if they're fine. and it also gives parents a way to kind of model just a little bit of emotional expression you know yeah something happened at work today that made me really excited or made me really mad or whatever um and so parents get to do some of that modeling which is also key
1: talking to andrew smiler who's the author of dating and sex a guide for the 21st century teen boy we're going to take a quick break when we come back we'll keep talking about teen boys Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Broad. If you're just joining us, I'm talking with Andrew Smiler, who's the author of Dating and Sex, a Guide for the Twenty First Century Teen Boy. I wanna talk about relationships and how what, what parents can do to help a teen boy who maybe is has a crush on somebody, he doesn't know how to talk to her, he doesn't know what to do. I'm trying to describe myself in in ways that's not so <laughs> clear that I'm describing myself, you know. <laughs> that that kind of thing somebody who's just petrified of the opposite sex
3: um, yeah that is a, a real challenge that a lot of boys they, they don't know what to say if there's some combination of magic words that no one has told them yet um, and they're also really worried about how it's going to go especially if they they have some real belief that it could go poorly and they could get turned down um One of the, I'm actually going to go with two of the things that I uh, encourage boys to do, and in particular, encourage parents to do, um, is to talk about what they're seeing on their screens. Mm -hmm. Um, If we're talking about younger teens, uh, there's a decent chance that there are some shows that those teens are watching and also the parents are watching. So there's an opportunity there when something that looks like a first date or some kind of Early sexual experience like kissing happens On screen I think this is something You can talk about once the show ends And these are characters you know pretty well But they're not People from your everyday life where your son Might feel like he needs to defend somebody's Action um, and so you Can get into some of the what ifs or You know what would you say if that was you In that situation or you know If, if the girl had said no If we're assuming a heterosexual couple like How would you handle that um, So it's it, provides a setup that the boys can kind of see and work through and do some of those what-if kind of things.
1: Okay. That's that's a good good way of looking at it. So I'm just trying to move through a couple of these issues um, that <laughs> sure. are that I'm, I'm interested in the whole idea of consent. And I know that that, that when people talk about consenting relationships and, and consent, in, especially in teen relationships, that there is a tendency to focus on Boys being the aggressors and girls being the, the the victims. And I've looked at a lot of data on this stuff as I've been doing things with, uh, you know, about masculinity and fatherhood. And, and there's a, a lot of data that's talking about how boys are often just as victimized by girls. You know, that, that same shy boy who doesn't know what he's going to do can be pressured into doing things that he doesn't want to do.
3: Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. One of the things that we know that has really changed in American culture over the last 20 years is that girls are starting to ask boys out um, at rates that, you know, two decades ago we didn't see. And we know that a lot of boys aren't really prepared to answer the question of, do you want to go out with me or do you want to kiss me? In part because they've never really seen another boy get asked that question and they've never thought about how would i answer that and so they don't actually know how to kind of give that polite no um and they typically don't want to hurt the girl's feelings so you know it's a polite no, not a no get away from me right um but but it's something that they they don't have experience for or they don't have experience with they haven't seen it and often times they've never thought about what they would do in that situation And again, as parents, we can help boys think about how, you know, how would you do that polite no? What does that Mm -hmm. look like? What would you say there?
1: Right. But there's there's both sides of the conversation that we need to have with boys. One of them is, of course, that you're not going to do anything that somebody is telling you no. And they're going to be very respectful. But at the same time, how do you stand up for yourself and not allow yourself to be pressured into something that you're not comfortable with or you're scared of or whatever?
3: Absolutely. And also, you know, how do you, um, how do you say no? That's not quite right. Um, really giving boys the permission to say no, that they don't have to live up to some kind of stereotypical image of masculinity that says that guys always want sex and guys would never turn down some kind of sexual offer. Um, a lot of a lot of boys don't really think that they're kind of allowed to say no to something sexual or even something that might be dating because again, they've never seen that and, and the cultural expectation is that guys would always say yes.
1: Of course. Yeah. Andrew, what is the difference for for parents who are not quite up to date on these things between dating and hooking up?
3: Um uh, there's hooking up Gets used in two different ways. So I'm going to start with dating because that's got a pretty broad consensus definition. Um, dating, especially as defined by teenagers, tends to be monogamous. It implies some level of a long term relationship. And of course, long term at, say, age 13 is different than at 16, is different than at 18. Um, Dating usually has some kind of emotional connection between the partners. Dating includes some level of sexual activity that might just be kissing and holding hands. Um, It might be a lot more than that all the way through sexual intercourse. So that's kind of the standard. That definition hasn't really changed in decades. Um, But then we get hooking up, which gets used in two different ways. Uh, one way is kind of the classic hookup or casual sex or one-night stand, which is really this kind of short-term sexual activity with a partner that you don't expect to see again. Um, For teenagers, they might see them again because it's somebody else in school, but there's no expectation of an ongoing relationship. There's no expectation of any kind of emotional connection or emotional intimacy, and it's really just about being sexual with somebody so that's that's pretty clear if you grew up in the 80s or 90s and you have a teenager now you're going to recognize those two terms today hooking up also gets used as this space that 20 years ago might have been like the first couple of dates so teens will start to talk about yeah i hooked up with someone you know we're not a couple yet Uh, but we've hooked up a couple of times and I think I like them and I kind of feel some kind of connection but we're not dating yet. Um, And so it's kind of this pre-dating space. You know, it's clearly not this kind of classic hookup where it's just one time, wham, bam, thank you, ma'am kind of thing and you never see the person again. But also it's not dating yet and it doesn't have kind of the old-school formality of we've gone on a first date, we've gone on a second date, we're having a third date, it doesn't have that kind of structure anymore. Um, so hooking up gets used there as well.
1: Okay. What are the other things you think parents need to know if they've got a teen boy around the house or somebody who's about to become a teen boy? What, what should they be doing to help help ease their young man into the world of adulthood?
3: Um, One of the big things is to be really clear with your son about parameters for his use of his phone, particularly texting, Um, and to recognize that, first off, this is a major part of how this generation of American teens connects with each other, Um, and they use their phones as much as many adults do. Um, Some adults actually use them more than their kids. Um, but also that sexting is actually both common and much more nuanced than we as adults think about it. When adults tend to think about sexting, we just think about naked pictures. And we know that there's a lot of that going on among teenagers. Um, but we can also talk about flat text here. Like if somebody texts you and says, hey, let's meet and make out, is <laughs> Right? I mean, because you, you could do that, right? You could. Um, you know, is, do you consider that sexting? Are you, you going to bust your kid for having that text on his phone? Does your kid really understand how much and how often you are seeing his text? A lot of the parents I work with um, routinely look at their 13- and 14-year-old kid's phones and go through and read their texts like... <laughs> If you see that, are you gonna flip out? Are you gonna say any, you know, how are you as a parent gonna respond to knowing that your son is going and making out with whoever it is? Um, You know, we can also then move up to kind of the next level, so to speak, where kids use icons like eggplant and flowers and (laughs) oh my gosh, I just forgot the other one um, for, you know, private parts of the body there Um, So, again, it's not naked pictures, but we are explicitly talking about.
1: Yeah, it kind of is. Yeah. Um,
3: Yeah, right. I mean, you know, it's not the kind of thing that, you know, where anybody's going to call it pornography, but we're now talking below the belt. And so, how do you deal with those? Would you actually prefer that your son be using those symbols instead of naked pictures? Because. You know, th- those are different, and, and you still yep. got to use your imagination with one and not the other. You Would you actually choose to steer him in that direction? Um, and these are things that most parents aren't really thinking about. They just think about the naked pictures. But um, this is a different level that we also need to be talking to our sons about.
1: Wow. Andrew Smiler, the author of Dating and Sex, a guide for the 21st century teen boy. Andrew, thanks very much. Have you got a, a website that people can find out more? Yeah,
3: Absolutely. My website is just my name, andrewsmiler.com, and the book is uh, available at all major outlets.
1: Excellent. Thank you very much.
3: Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here.